Professor Kenneth Valpi. Um, the title of his talk is God as the Supreme Teacher, Swami Prabhupada's Modern Gaudiya Vaishnava Mission to Reveal the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So um, Kenneth Valpi is a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies and a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. He's the co-director uh, of the Bhagavata Purana Research Project. He has co-edited a volume of articles and translated a volume of selections from the Bhagavata Purana. Both volumes were published by Columbia University Press. He has recently published a monograph on animal ethics entitled Called Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. Um, he has uh, taught courses on, on Indian religion and culture at the University of Florida, Gainesville, Chinese University of Hong Kong, in the University of Pula, Croatia. He's a practitioner of Vaishnava Hindu devotional yoga since 1972. So please, Kenneth Valpi, Krishna Kshetra Swami, this, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ricardo. And thank you, Alan, also, both of you, for inviting me to take part in this project, which is. It's really, I think, a, a very important project because it's going to be instrumental in putting um, Vaishnava discussion of God, God on, on the map of philosophy of religion. So I think this is a very good thing. Um, I was kind of un under the impression that we should come to this prepared with a first draft of uh, of what would we would be putting in, in the book. And so uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to be reading. Um, but I do have some slides with quotes, occasional quotes. So if I can share the screen, I would like to do that. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, but first, some introductory comments. A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, 1896-1977, was a prominent contemporary exponent of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, known for successfully expanding a worldwide mission of what he called Krishna consciousness, which he formalized as the International Society for Krishna Consciousness in 1966. Swami Prabhupada identified himself as an authorized and faithful member of a disciplic succession of the Gaudiya Vaishnava lineage and re regarded himself as strictly adhering to and conveying the teachings of his predecessors as what he called a transparent via medium. Yet there are noteworthy features of his particular presentation of Gaudiya, Vaish Gaudiya Vaishnava theology and practice that deserve our attention in the context of this conference's aim, namely, namely to articulate the several shades of theological reflection on the nature of God found in, in Vaishnava traditions. 
In particular, I want to suggest that Swami Prabhupada put special emphasis on the idea of God as teacher, indeed as the supreme teacher, worthy of being regarded as a key attribute of God, particularly as Krishna, and more specifically as speaker of what would become known as the Bhagavad Gita. It may be argued that God as teacher is an attribute already recognizable in Gaudiya and other Vaishnava traditions. Yet Prabhupada's particular ways, partly stylistic but also substantive, of presenting and enacting this attribute may serve to enrich not only our understanding of the Gaudiya and possibly other Vaishnava conceptions of God, it may also facilitate an enrichment of and specification of what the philosopher of religion, Robert Neville, and his colleagues identify as a fuzzy category for comparing re religious ideas, namely the category religious truth under three subheadings, namely propositional truth, performative truth, and embodied truth. To these ends, I will give attention to three key English expressions used extensively by Prabhupada, namely, quote, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, uh, his translation of uh, Bhagavan, the Sanskrit term, devotional service, his main translation of the term bhakti, and Krishna consciousness, his translation of Krishna Bhavanamrita. Parenthetically, these three expressions can be related to three traditional Gaudiya theological categories, namely Sambandha or Sambandha Jnana, Abhideya, and Prayojana. So I'll structure this presentation somewhat loosely around Prabhupada's three expressions to argue that conceiving God as supreme teacher is an important key to his understanding of God as Krishna. So we start with uh, propositional truth. Um, this, this quote will come up in a minute. To get a sense of how Swami Prabhupada's identification of Krishna as the Supreme Personality of Godhead is significant for qualifying Krishna as the Supreme Teacher. Let's begin with an extract from near the beginning of Prabhupada's introduction to his Gita translation and commentary, Bhagavad Gita as it is. And I quote, the speaker of Bhagavad Gita is Lord Sri Krishna. He is mentioned on every page of Bhagavad Gita as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Bhagavan. Of course, the word Bhagavan sometimes refers to any powerful person or any powerful demigod. And certainly here, Bhagavan designates Lord Sri Krishna as a great personality. But at the same time, we should know that Lord Sri Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, as is confirmed by all great Acharyas like Shankara Acharya. Ramanuja Acharya, Madhva Acharya, Nimbarka Swami, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and many other authorities of Vedic knowledge in India. 
Here, Prabhupada appeals to the authority of several Vaishnava teachers and even to the Advaita Vedanta school's preeminent Shankaracharya. And he also indicates further on in this Gita introduction that Krishna is identified explicitly as, as Bhagavan in post-Vedic texts other, other than the Bhagavad Gita. For Prabhupada, these references are sufficient to establish Krishna incontrovertibly as the Supreme Being, from which he then derives the conclusion that Krishna's words in the Gita are supremely authoritative. Implied here and elsewhere made more explicit, Swami Prabhupada takes as objective historical truth Krishna's claim in the Gita that he speaks to Arjuna the same teaching that he had spoken in ancient times to a particular celestial superhuman being, the Lord of the Sun, Vivasvan. Being the same te uh, teaching given by the same person who is identified as the Supreme Person, implied is that the teaching is both faultless and accessible. Also implied in Prabhupada's Gita introduction is the claim that because the term Bhagavan is omniscient, his position as supreme knower affirms his authority to teach. Indeed, Prabhupada identifies Krishna as the supreme teacher of the world early in his Gita commentary. As an omniscient teacher possessing ultimate authority over the, con over the content of his teaching, and since the core content of his teaching is about God himself, it becomes particularly necessary to recognize, according to Swami Prabhupada, that God is ultimately and essentially a person. Hence, the expression Supreme Personality of Godhead serves to encapsulate both the identity of this Supreme Teacher, Krishna, as well as the core content of his teaching, namely that God, Krishna, is to be understood as a person, specifically as the Supreme Person or Primordial Person. Further, for Swami Prabhupada, the scope of God's knowledge being unlimited must include having perfect and complete knowledge of how to convey knowledge of himself to humans such that humans can comprehend and imbibe this knowledge. Such teaching know-how, how to transfer knowledge of himself, of God, is, according to Prabhupada, done first and foremost through a process of explicit verbal instruction by Krishna, complemented by conscious, intentional, verbal, oral learning, aural learning, on the part of humans who undertake the effort to hear and understand God. What I've so far noted regarding Swami Prabhupada's identifying God as Krishna and Krishna as the Supreme Teacher can all be characterized in terms of propositional truth, which Neville and colleagues highlight as having error as its opposite. I think I have a slide to say this. Yes. Um, Swami Prabhupada's logic in making this identification is rooted in his literalist interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita, whereby Krishna is taken 
to have literally appeared in the world in a historical context, in a geographically identifiable place in ancient India. Literalism may be understood as simple acceptance of Krishna's words in the Bhagavad Gita as having been truly spoken by him who speaks truly without error about himself. It is an approach by which any trace of a hermeneutics of suspicion is entirely absent. For Swami Prabhupada, literal reading of the Gita secures and honors the notion that because God is omnipotent, he is fully able to and does communicate effectively and faultlessly, which is to say, without error. And he accomplishes such error-free communication despite, or indeed, because he is present in the phenomenal world when he speaks the Gita. In his Gita commentary, Swami Prabhupada uses the phrase perfect knowledge 36 times, identifying thereby the quality of the knowledge taught by Krishna as perfect, or else he shows confidence that it is perfectly possible for human beings to receive or become situated in perfect knowledge. So now I'll proceed to discuss uh, performative truth, devotional service, the opposite of which is deceit. Uh, what, what Swami Prabhupada emphasizes is what we might call divine personal specificity, which could be expressed in the form of a question, namely, quote, among all possible candidates for the position of God, who is God truly? Unquote. A question that Prabhupada answers with such assertions as perfect knowledge of the absolute truth means perfect knowledge of Krishna. While certainly aligned with Gaudiya Vaishnava epistemology, which privileges Shabda Praman from a specified divine personal source, contra the Mimamsa insistence on absolute aporusheyatva of, of Shabda Praman, Swami Prabhupada arguably goes a step further by translating Bhagavan as the Supreme Personality of Godhead, he highlights God's agency and intentionality in his role as Supreme Teacher. Thus, God is not only the Supreme Preceptor, he is also the Supreme Performer, Enactor, or Initiator of Teacher-Student Relationality. As Swami Prabhupada notes, perhaps echoing and extending Ramanuja. The living entities are always subordinate to the Supreme Lord, as in the case of the master and the servant, or the teacher and the taught. And what sort of performance is being enacted? Yoga. Both the Lord as Yogeshwara and the Jiva enact yoga, the fruit of which is the linking of Yogeshvara and the jiva. Both are yogis in a relation of yoga teacher and yoga student. This brings us to the second of Neville and colleagues' categories of religious truth, namely performative truth, 
which has as its opposite deceit. Since Krishna is identified as Bhagavan, suggesting omnibenevolence as well as omniscience and omnipotence, and since those, uh, beginning with Arjuna, who seek to comprehend his teachings, are said to find his teachings to be true, Krishna's appearance in the world is regarded by Swami Prabhupada as the perfect performance of truth, free from all deception. For Swami Prabhupada, the performative truth of Bhagavan Sri Krishna's enactment of yoga as Yogeshvara, by appearing directly in the world and directly speaking his teachings, crucially centers on teaching the jivas represented especially by Arjuna uh, in the Gita, teaching the jivas a process, a practice, a performance, how to connect permanently with him, Krishna, by performing specifically and centrally bhakti yoga. Whereas bhakti is often translated in English with the word devotion, Prabhupada most often wrote and spoke of devotional service, which he frequently referred to as that which devotees perform. Further, he identifies or equates devotional service with the Lord, thereby equating this activity as performative truth with the performative truth of Krishna's teaching about himself. For example, he says, devotional service is a process of spiritual understanding, whereas devotional service exists, the material contamination cannot coexist, sorry, wherever it exists. Devotional service to the Lord and the Lord himself are one and the same because they are spiritual. And he says further, this is in a lecture, one of his early lectures. We should find out what will please Krishna and we should do that. How can we know what will please Krishna by hearing Bhagavad Gita and taking the right interpretation from the right person. Then we'll know what Krishna wants and we can act accordingly. At that time, we will uh, be elevated to first-class devotional service. To act accordingly is for Prabhupada to perform devotional service in such a way as will please Krishna. Thus, pleasing Krishna is the goal of the performance, but it is also the test of its authenticity. It is performative truth free from deception. Bhakti as devotional service implies active engagement, whereby physical embodiment can be understood as a, I would call it, a bodying forth of the devotee uh, student in concert with the divine teacher. Yet such bodying forth occurs as already implied in two directions, from above uh, by the supreme teacher and from below by the devotee student. As Prabhupada repeatedly emphasized, how these two are connected is through the chain of disciplic succession, quote unquote. Of course, the notion of Guru Parampara, disciplic succession, is common to all Vaishnava traditions, including the Gaudiya tradition. What is to be noted as distinctive 
in Swami Prabhupada's presentation is his emphasis on the, quote, right interpretation by the right person, unquote, where the right interpretation is a literal one, the right person doing the interpreting is clear, clearly one who interprets the teaching literally. And we go to the third and last section, embodied truth, Krishna consciousness. The expected result of this bi-directional practice of yoga by Krishna and by the devotee of Krishna is what Swami Prabhupada referred to countless times as Krishna consciousness. In one early lecture, Prabhupada said, Nonetheless, while there is no possibility of experimental knowledge about Krishna, if one becomes advanced in Krishna consciousness, he will realize God directly. For example, through realization, I am firmly convinced of whatever I am saying here about Krishna. I am not speaking blindly. Similarly, anyone can realize God. Svayameva spuratyada. Direct knowledge of God will be revealed to anyone who sticks to the process of Krishna consciousness. Such a person will actually understand, yes, there is a spiritual kingdom where God resides, and I have to go there. I must prepare to go there. Before going to another country, one may hear so much about it, but when he actually goes there, he understands everything directly. Similarly, if one takes up the process of Krishna consciousness, one day he'll understand God and the kingdom of God directly. And the whole problem of his life will be solved. Throughout his Gita commentary, Prabhupada emphasizes that Krishna consciousness is yoga and that Krishna is actively involved helping a jiva yogi to achieve permanent success in yoga. He writes, Krishna's devotee's only desire is to achieve the association of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Such a devotee undoubtedly approaches the Lord without difficulty. This is called yoga. Uh, the Lord helps the devotee to achieve Krishna consciousness by yoga. And when he becomes fully Krishna conscious, the Lord protects him from falling down to a miserable condition of life. Here the point is that for Swami Prabhupada, the expression Krishna consciousness can be understood as indicating the third of Neville's three subcategories of religious truth, namely embodied truth. The opposite of embodied truth is failure, which is to say that the sort of truth in question is embodied in practice in the constant engagement in devotional service to the point of, as Prabhupada says, quote unquote, understanding everything directly. This idea that one can understand everything directly brings us back to our starting point. Namely, Swami Prabhupada's translation of the Sanskrit term Bhagavan as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Thus, everything in this case means 
to understand God to be a specific person, namely Krishna. And this knowledge is direct in a way similar to how we all directly know any other person. And a few concluding, well, coming up in a minute, some concluding thoughts. Oh, I put in the wrong order. <clears throat> yeah. Swami Prabhupada did not regard himself as a theologian or a philosopher so much as a missionizing servant of his direct teacher, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati. As such, he regarded himself as performing the function of a transparent via medium of teachings that he regarded as being faithfully transmitted from Krishna, especially as inscribed in the Bhagavad Gita, comprehended literally as having been spoken on a battlefield in what is now North India. Regarding Krishna as the ultimate and unique omniscient Lord, Prabhupada deemed Krishna to be the supreme teacher whose process of teaching as the Lord of Yoga was perfectly capable and effective for bringing about direct personal knowledge of Krishna, a knowledge deemed the perfection of yoga. Such perfectional knowledge was to be understood, indeed lived experientially through purified senses, quote unquote, through uh, performance of devotional service, again in quotes, by which the Supreme Personality of Godhead would become known as he is, again in quotes, a transformative sort of knowing in that the practitioner becomes an active participant in the process of teaching and learning. First as a learner and then as a teacher, a transparent via medium for the Supreme Teacher. And now uh, back to as Paul Carney writes in the context of discussing the Vallabhite Vaishnava tradition, for the devotees of Krishna, that most colorful of all Hindu deities, ultimate truth is not a remote, nebulous abstraction consigned solely to the realm of philosophical speculation, nor is it something bound up with theological dogma and imposed from above, Rather, it is constantly affirmed as an immediate reality to be validated by ordinary devotees themselves through direct perception. Uh, this same idea, oops, uh, this same idea could be well attributed to Swami Prabhupada, who many times spoke strongly of the limitations and even futility of philosophical speculation about the Supreme. By insisting on a literal reading of the Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada charted a process of teaching and learning Krishna consciousness that, he insisted, is thoroughly grounded in the recognition of Krishna as the Supreme Teacher of what Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita refers to as the King of Knowledge, Rajavidya. Yet, and this is my final point, uh, yet Swami Prabhupada's um, liter literalism, uh, maybe we want to call it abundant literalism following Graham Oppie, 
uh, begs acknowledgement as being highly resistant to our modern and postmodern sensibilities. Is it not, we wonder, a classic example of circular reasoning, since Krishna himself makes the claim of being the supreme being, and those who accept his authority base it on his own claim? Or, alternatively, is his literalism a challenge to and a way of breaking out from what anthropologist Susan Greenwood calls rationalism's hall of mirrors? Can the rationalism demanded in determining propositional truth even determine which of these alternatives applies? Could it be rather that the performative and embodied dimensions of truth do well to be included in the calculus of religious truth's validation? And I leave with that question. I end with that question. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the interesting talk. So we have time for discussion. No questions. Okay, so Adam has a question and after him, uh, I think I would like to ask a question. So go ahead, Adam. Um, you myself? Okay, thanks. Uh, thank you very much. That was really actually interesting, the way you kind of like expressed that and explained it. I never really thought of it that way. Um, so, so we have, I mean, let me try to get this, try to figure out. So you have a concept of God basically is framed um, through, is framed through tattva or basically the teaching attribute, God in as much as it teaches in a sense. And that's done in terms of the Anabandhas, you know, those, the, the, the um, Sambandha, Abhidhya and Prayojana, which are the three. And you've kind of linked them in with proposition and performance and embodiment and body truth, these three types of truths. Um, and as much as I think the way they fit in better is through, I think, the later Gaudiya, like I think Krishnadas Kaviraj deals with it more like theology and uh, practice and that type of thing, rather than hermeneutic categories. And um, in this way, the idea of God is something that is embodied in all these different attributes that come out of a, a teacher type of thing. Is that, is that getting in the direction where you were going? Is that something? Or am I completely <laughs> off key? <laughs> well, possibly. Um, but I just want uh, to sort of draw back uh, from sort of uh, the focus that I think uh, tends to be there in um, in our deliberations on what would be called propositional truth, and therefore um, identifying God as supreme teacher, yes, um, it's it's taking you can say speaking in propositional terms, uh, God is supreme teacher, but then um, what are the implications of that uh, there? Uh, leading sort of straight out of the realm of proposition to uh, to his performance and and what I'm what Neville is calling uh, embodiment and and this importance of the the process um, 
a supreme teacher should be a really good teacher, <laughs> should be an, an effective teacher, should be one who can really, uh, you know, get across whatever he or she is teaching. So I think uh, the, the idea here is just that uh, for, for Swami Prabhupada, um, Krishna demonstrates that uh, to, um, to, the, to the best way known or to the, to the greatest extent known, if you like. Um, and he, he, he does focus very much uh, on the Bhagavad Gita as sort of the model of teaching, but of course, he also re refers to Bhagavata Purana uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's kind of how I'm trying to take it. That's very interesting. Thanks. Thank you. All right, I, I'd like to ask a question. Uh, well, that, that's in fact a very, it's a very interesting uh, uh, idea, if understood well, to consider um, God is, as a supreme teacher, as a kind of attribute of God. Um, so if this is right, and if we consider that every attribute that God has, he has it essentially, not accidentally, he must have that attribute. So, mm. so just an implication that came to my head that um, in order to be a teacher, of course, you have to, you, you need students, right? And it seems that the kind of knowledge that, that, that you are considering is, is basically knowledge that, that leads someone towards liberation. So, so, so if you need students, you need uh, people who are conditioned uh, and they are in this material world, right? So, so, so then in order, I, I, I hope I, I'll be clear enough. So in order for God to be the Supreme Teacher, he needs like a creation. He needs this material realm. So in this sense, uh, this material realm should be there. So, so some, some philosophers, they see a problem with that. They don't speak about material mm -hmm. creation. They see a problem with that, that they, they think that if God, he has to create a world, don't he, then he's not completely free. He mm -hmm. has the obligation. I, 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 I know that this, is, this goes a little bit I mean, too yeah, far, yeah. but uh, how, how would you respond to that? I <clears throat> okay, it's very interesting to... Uh, your your reasoning. I'm I'm always uh, shuddering at your powers of logic, Ricardo. <laughs> um, but I think there's a presupposition there, uh, which the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, more broadly, not just Swami Prabhupada, would uh, argue. Jiva Goswami, I believe, would argue uh, that uh, God is also teacher in uh, in the in the transcendent realm. That and that could be, you know, there would be examples of that in the Bhagavata Purana. Uh, he's teaching the gopis, you know. And so from that perspective, I think uh, the idea that he has to therefore have a material world in order to have students because they have to be conditioned uh, so that he can teach them liberation, I think uh, gets undermined um, by that. But what it does highlight, I think, uh, yes, to be a teacher, you need students. And that highlights uh, the, the notion uh, that if we, take, um, if we take his being a teacher as, as, a, as an essential attribute, 
um, th that there is uh, fundamentally a distinction between God and and creatures, God and the jivas, uh, and indeed uh, this is how um, that re that's this is one way of highlighting that distinction. I would say. Okay, thank you very much. So, so Christopher has a question, but I, I, I think that Professor Varakedi, he, he, he wanted to ask something. Am I wrong, Professor Varakedi? Yes. Uh, yeah, it was a very lucid presentation. I liked it. So, I, I would like to ask a simple question. Um, uh, so, Prabhupada. Uh, follows uh, Acharya Madhva in many of his tenets. Uh, but he, at one point, he defers that uh, uh, Lord Krishna, the form of Krishna, is supreme being. Mm. And my question is, what made him to defer from uh, the tradition of Madhva? Ah. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, the other question is, uh, if so, the other forms of God are inferior to uh, Krishna? Uh, this is the question. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting question coming from your good self uh, as a scholar uh, of Madhva, Madhva Vedanta. I'm, uh, yes, I'm, I'm very challenged. You, you've asked in a very polite way. <laughs> um, let me just say that's a big subject. Uh, but uh, as, a, as I mentioned, Swami Prabhupada saw himself as a follower of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati. That line goes back uh, to Sri Chaitanya. Uh, Sri Chaitanya and, and, well, before Sri Chaitanya, uh, rather after Sri Chaitanya, uh, is Baladeva Vidya Bhushana. And then before Chaitanya, there is uh, Ishvara Puri and then there's Madhavendra Puri. Now, within the Gaudiya tradition, there's a claim that Madhavendra Puri was a disciple, uh, was, was a member of the Madhva Sampradaya, to which, of course, you will say, what? What do you mean by having a sannyasi with the name Puri. All our sannyasis have the name Tirtha. So there we get into some murky history, but also theologically, um, a lot of uh, scholarship has been done on this point that while there is considerable overlap or acceptance of uh, Madhva, and I, I'm not, I don't have it at my uh, at the tip of my mind, uh, the details of this at present, but that there are also considerable points of uh, connection with the Sri Vaishnava Sampradaya. Um, so there's there's a tension there of uh, acceptance, non-acceptance, and as far as regard of other uh, forms of of divinity, Narayana, Vishnu, and so on. There's a kind of understanding that there is equality and there is also difference. So one of the uh, most important acharyas of the Gaudiya line is Rupa Goswami. 
and he wants to identify Krishna as superior in the sense that he has four specific uh, uh, qualities, gunas, which all other forms of Vishnu do not exhibit. Um, but again, that's that's a whole that's a longer discussion. It mainly has to do with the importance of rasa uh, and understanding relation with God in terms of rasa. I hope that gives some indication. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, so Christopher, please, your turn. Uh, thank you. Yes, no, actually, Ricardo, I was just going to reply or just throw in a, a two cents uh, following up on your question about necessity and the problem of the, the appearance that God needs students or needs the, uh, the offerings at a temple and so on. And of course, the, the construct that's most often invoked there is Leela um, or play. Um, as most people here, uh, I think, would agree, uh, a very central concept. When we think of baby Krishna dancing with the gopis, there are these very explicit modes of play in the life of Krishna. But also theologically, it's very important to, uh, to, uh, to have as a reference in when one says, well, he appears to need to do this, or he appears to act out of necessity to do this or that. But actually, it's just all lila. And so wherever it, it, it seems that God is, is acting on a kind of a compulsion or seeking to cause something that is, he, you know, he, he might think he could snap his fingers and bring about this concept, Leela is, is, is always ready at hand, you know, as a reference to, I don't know if it's, if you find it, you know, uh, philosophically convincing necessarily, but it is a construct that's, that's invoked fairly often in that context. No, sure, sure. I, I think everything. Uh, uh, what is uh, what is at stake here is whether or not the God's attributes they are essential. Because a, a, a lila, something that he does in a lila is is up to him, right? Is accidental, we might say. So if if his 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 property, we might say, as a teacher, is also a lila, so he doesn't possess that property uh, necessarily. Is, is accidental. So, so I think the, the whole thing is whether or not we consider his properties essential or accidental. Some people would say that God doesn't have any accidental property. All, all of God's properties are, are, are essential, but, but that's another issue. Okay, uh, now uh, Juan, Juan Diego, please. Okay, I had some troubles with my connection here, so I, I, I hope that this works. Uh, my question is more like a commentary and, and a related question, is that uh, the concept that, that Swami is developing about uh, this embodied truth, I think it would be nice, very good to relate it with the kind of philosophy of mind that is developing in the recent decades, in the, the, the idea of embodied mind, extended mind and ecological mind. And also in the, some years ago, uh, we have the development of 
the standard uh, knowledge. And also, uh, in, in this connection, I have wrote a, a paper entitled The Ecology of Religious Knowledges, and that appears in the journal Religions in, in this year, in 2022, that, that covers this kind of issues. And I think that is very interesting to, to go deep in this understanding. Mm, thank you. That sounds interesting. Um, if somehow uh, I could get a copy of your paper, that would be nice. Instead of philosophy as a way of life that comes from Greek, uh, ancient Greek, and 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 yeah. But my 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 question will be that if you are acquainted with that uh, literature and this kind of. Uh, discussions yeah. and also uh, whether this kind of epistemology, let us say, embodied uh, epistemology is connected with uh... hmm. connection is not the best. Yeah. <clears throat> uh... <laughs> well, uh, uh, we lost you. Yeah. So um, perhaps you can you can email your question to, to yeah I, I think I think I got the essential thing he he's brought up a nice point uh, he was asking whether I'm familiar with okay, that so, so I, I will leave my comment out whoops but not his uh, answer <laughs> so I, I'm just saying I'm only very minimally familiar with it um, I'm I know personally one um, scholar who's quite engaged with it but i would be very uh, thankful if i could receive your paper the one that you mentioned one uh, this could help uh, to formulate some connection with that discourse thank you okay okay so so i think our time is up but as we have done in the previous sessions and since we had a talk with no questions, so if someone want to ask something to, not to all speakers, because there are only two of them, mm -hmm. uh, to, to Professor Acharya, um, I myself have a question, but if someone else, okay, go, on, go ahead. It's really quick. I don't know if you're still there. Okay, you're there. Yeah. How are you? Thanks for going through that. It was very detailed. <laughs> you went through everything. Um, the one question I just I just want to clarify it's nothing it's very simple um, and a part of it you mentioned about the super primary denotative which is God right remember that part dealing with us with 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 um, with Narayan or God is the super you called it a super uh, primary denotative you remember that yeah yeah okay so and everything ultimately whatever you whatever you say or whatever speak or references basically point to god ultimately right so is that is that have i got it right basically okay uh, in his philosophy of language he does not mean to say that when i speak i do not refer for example if i'm referring to a mobile phone it the word is referring to the mobile phone but mm -hmm. this is a denotative but when it comes to the same term that, for example, if I say mobile phone, it also speaks about not just just the mobile phone, that's a material one that I have in my hand. It also speaks about the innermost essence of this object, 
because mm-hmm. of which this object is functioning so that mm-hmm. is the denotative that is also denotative but that is super primary denotative whereas this is primarily denotative okay got it so this is okay so that's a super so my question i think you kind of answered it because my answer my question was really how do you conceive of a of um if if everything denotes even as a even as the essence of, of things you know if everything denotes um ultimately demotes god as as, a, as an essence then um how do you conceive conceive of a particular god as not iron and also you have issues with the whole dualist thing as well I've, that was my basic question you know uh, do you understand the question no i didn't get it i'm okay. sorry for that i'm trying to say all i was saying is that if you if you um if everything denotes or signifies god i'm guessing it's not iron right in all instances right um then and even if that's the essence of narayan in the mobile phone and whatever within that essence is always narayan um first of all how does that become dualism and secondly um there's uh the question of how do you conceive of the particularity of narayan if everything denotes narayan is there a different kind of denotation that denotes specifically narayan if you know what i mean okay okay so the term uh, for example if we use uh, because sanskrit language is considered to be uh, etymological in nature uh, even though it has its own uh, rule that uh, uh, a simple linguistic rule is that uh, that when it comes to a natural conversation in a natural language so the convention or the usage gets uh, the primary importance over its etymological essence so so when it comes to every word for example narayana so there are a lot of madhva philosophers who have written more than 100 meanings of the one term so there are many names even madhva himself says that each and every uh, word or a name that is used in vishnu sahasrama has more than 100 meanings so uh, all these names for example narayana means it means immaculate narayana means form of all good qualities narayana means the one who is approachable by the wise so all these words whenever i speak about something mobile phone means that's a phone that makes sound and i can carry it so it's mobile so the one that who is inside this is enabling the sound is enabling its mobility so in that sense it is referring to the object as well as to its immanent entity now so narayana can be you you can in the conventional or in the in the a traditional sense that you can call narayana with all his names of vishnu sahasrama or any other uh, names that exist in the religious tradition you can also use that name to uh, invoke narayana at the same time you can also consider that your everyday life is also everyday life is also worship to that narayana or krishna or vishnu or hari or whoever so that's his uh, thought did i answer your question So the basically the relationship between the mobile phone and Orion is one of dependence. Yes, yes, yes. It is dependent okay. on yeah. Because okay, it cannot it. be created on its own. It has to come with someone. So I, if I'm the manufacturer of this of this phone, but I need the resources to manufacture and that those resources are coming out of the matter and that the one who channelized who propelled the matter to become the material universe is Narayana. Mm-hmm. Okay thank you thank you
Yeah, I have a question, and in, in, uh, it, it is exactly about about that notion that you used a lot, dependence. You 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 said many times that the, the world depends on God, uh, for instance. So so I was wondering how how this relates to to Ramanuja's view, because the the Amshamshin, Prakara, Prakarin, and Shesha Sheshin relation that we find in Ramanuja is usually explained in terms of dependence or like some philosopher would, would put it in terms of ontological dependence. So uh, how, how that's the first, the first question, in fact, I have two, sorry, but they are related. So, so that's my, my first question. How would you explain the difference between the way you explain Madhu's uh, concept of God using the word dependence or ontological dependence, if you, if you allow me to use this, this expression, and, and the way many, many people understood Ramanuja also in terms of ontological dependence. And, and the, second, the second question is related to the first one is, is because you mentioned Descartes, and that was very nice. And you said that God is the only independent being, right? So, so but in, in Descartes, he, he talks about substance and uh, the, the way this, this concept is traditionally understood is that a substance is something that subsists by itself, right? So following this, if we say that God is the, is the, is the independent being and every, everyone, everything else depends on him, then you correct if I'm, if I'm wrong, we, we might say also that God is the only substance that exists. Am ah, I correct? Okay. Um, so when he sees dualism, uh, uh, I'm sorry, you uh, you finished your question? Yeah, yeah, I did. But according to this definition of substance, because because there are other ways to see the, the, the concept. Yeah, that's it. I'm done. So yes, God is a substance, but not God is the only substance. That's the answer. Now, uh, so when in Sanskrit, the word, term for substance is dravya. So there, there are two ways of looking at what is dravya, either dravana prapya or upadana karana. Now, if, uh, so in Bhagavata, it is very, even in Madhva's biography, it's a very inter interesting incident. If I can take one minute, uh, Madhva keeps on offering his prayer to everything. So in our, uh, throughout his house, when he was in 10, 11 year old kid, he offers his prayers to the pillar and the, um, stuff everything that is kept inside the house so his father uh, feels that uh, my son is going to become a great householder and takes the response because he's so uh, connected with the house and uh, all the household stuff he will be taking care of my property later very greatly but he rather he renounces everything and then he becomes uh, sannyasi and he completely leaves the family uh, so at this point of time the father asks what are you doing why are you offering prayers to everything so madhva says that I'm offering prayer because uh, they are they are the substance. So he says that uh, uh, he doesn't say the word substance. He says uh, I'm offering because swavastu pranatim vyadam. So it's my vastu object. So not just the substance, any other category. So then later we don't understand what he meant by the word vastu. It's not just vastu means existent. So he in his uh, when he was 70 years old, when he was writing Bhagavata Tatpranaya commentary, he writes the definition of the word vastu when in Bhagavata it appears. He says, Vedyam vastava matra vastu shivadam tapatrayon mulanam. The entity, the existent entity is not just merely if it exists. I cannot call it alone existent. It exists because of some other independent entity that it's helping to exist. 
and that independent entity also is removing all the obstacle. For example, if I am sitting here, I need this uh, the base to sit. And if I don't have the base, I would have fallen down. Now, this if there is any obstacle, it helps that entity to exist. So that rea that is why it's called super primary denotative because of it, the whole world functions. In the same sense, the substance, every other entity, it's not they are dependent, doesn't mean they are unreal. That's not the point. And uh, they are equally real as the God is, as the Supreme Being is. And they are, they are also complete. They are also, once they free themselves, they attain moksha, they become complete. But their completion has a gradation. For example, if I have a glass of water and I have a bucket full of water, and if I have a river full of water, and if I have an ocean full of water, they all of them are complete, but there is a gradation. There is voluminous difference in all of them. Similarly, each and every object that exists in this universe, they exist. They are in they are it's a little difficult. I mean, this idea of independence has been very well debated within the text. Um, and the definition goes here and there. And then there's a lot of uh, prolongated debate on this topic. Uh, to summarize it, the point here, what he is trying to say is that all other substance, they subsist, if I want to take uh, Cartesian definition or the, the classical one. They subsist, but they subsist because of its innermost essence, which holds it together. It's like some sort of strong force and weak force. So the strong force, it holds it together and enables that entity to subsist. So this one is also a substance. And the, another the thing is also substance. Madhva has a very detailed list of substance than any other Indian philosopher, metaphysician, more than Nayaikas, Vaisheshikas, all these people put together. So he has a very elongated version which we can read in Padartha Sangraha, one of his uh, uh, followers text in 17th century. So this is one answer to the second question. The first question, the difference between Ramanuja's uh, thought and Madhva's thought. Uh, later, Shankaracharya, uh, if, if you see almost all Indian philosophers, there's a strong similarity between these traditions. Okay, And uh, after Shankara's Advaita, other forms of Advaita really took a very different position. Even uh, within Advaita tradition, Shankara's Advaita tradition, or even others. They reinterpreted Advaita in a very different sense. So you could see a very striking uh, distinction in their conception of the Vedantic concepts. And particularly when it comes to, you, at the same time, you can also see a lot of similarities. So there is a lot of similarity between Madhva's tradition and Ramanuja's tradition. At the same time, equally, there is a lot of, uh, uh, even, for example, uh, Achintya Beda Beda of uh, 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 Hare Krishna Pantar, uh, uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's uh, philosophy, and then uh, Savishesha Beda of uh, Dvaita philosophy. You could see also some sort of similarity exists in their conception of this, these two identity. But at the same time, there is a strong difference between these two concepts. Similarly, Ramanujas and Madhvas. In Ramanuja, the Vishnu himself, he becomes the material universe, as well as you, me, all of us who are gathered here, we are nothing but the extension of Vishnu. So Ramanujaya's philosophy gives this example of a clay becoming a clay pot, a clay bowl, a clay spoon, a clay everything. But at the same time, all these clay pot, clay bowl, clay, every 
object that is material that is made out of the clay matter is distinct from the clay itself. They are they are the byproduct of the clay, yet they are distinct. See me, but this is not Madhva's thought. Ma according to Madhva, animate individual cannot become an inanimate object. So, uh, because of this Madhva uh, Ramanuja's conception of Vishnu becoming the universe, the matter, the animate and inanimate universe. Because of this, you can also see his epistemological conception when it comes to the discourse of validity. But in Madhva's case, they are completely, yet they are entirely distinct. Distinct to that extent, Madhva says the universal that exists, the potness that exists in the pot is distinct from another potness that is to exist in the another pot is a very unique contribution of Madhva. So each and every universal that exists in every entity, it is not the same. They are Pratishvika Dharma. They are entirely different. That partners is different. This partners is different. They have similarity. It doesn't mean they are, the, they are identical. So it's not Vishnu who has become the universe. Vishnu has designed, transformed the prakriti, the matter to become the material and uh, also enabled all other so they, he gave that material to them to this embodiment. He gave for them to function in this universe. So this is what he means. This is entirely different from uh, uh, Ramanuja's conception of uh, Amshamshi Baba and other aspects. I hope I answered your both the questions. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm satisfied. I, I, I suppose everyone is completely satisfied. You want to say something, Alan? You are. Okay. I'll mute myself again. Um, so yeah, a lot of it, a lot of this, um, a lot of Madhava's uh, uh, kind of tactics, approach, strategy is to do with um, the different the types of translating of certain terms in Sanskrit. Like I noticed at the beginning, the differentiation between Saguna and Nirguna are very different to how it wait, how how Sankara would would, uh, would translate it. Like for instance, you said um, Saguna is considered with good attributes and virtues, and Nirguna is not is translated literally as you know without the worldly prakriti gunas that type of thing. Whereas, whereas in in you know uh, Shankar's version, it would be more about just no qualities that type of thing. So a lot of this concept of God that's coming out of Madhva is also very much like you've been expressing throughout this talk. It's very much connected with the language and the way the hermeneutics involved in actually understanding the Sanskrit coming out of the different texts, you know, the whole. So, so that's, yeah, that, that's more like a comment to something rather than a question. But if you wanted to add anything to that, feel free. Yeah, to great extent, yes, uh, because this debate exists in India uh, in Indian philosophy whether manadina uh, siddhi or manasiddhi is the ontology that is first or the epistemology that is first. So whether the whole world is a product of is it an epistemological construction? So uh, or uh, if I have to put it in very simple terms, is the uh, I experience this object so this object exists or this object exists independent of my experience. So in, if I have to bring this dimension to this debate, all these objects, they exist independent of me. They are, so Madhva is a realist. So they are real by nature. That is what he means by the term Tattvavada. They are real. They exist independently. Now, 
and even the language according to vedanta and mimamsa uh, they both believe in varna nityatva and veda purushetva even the language that is independent so no, not dependent independent but they exist by they exist now what I, what is happening here is that i am making use of the language to because it's a tool i am using the tool to understand the universe so the moment i change the matrix of the tool it's possible so now that we can see the how language keeps on evolving over a period of time i can change the matrix of the language at the same time even if i change the matrix of the language it's never going to change the reality of the object it's independent independent in the sense it exists outside our so that is what i meant by what is enlightenment subjective experience of objective reality the objective reality exists independently however my experience is subjective it's limited mm-hmm. okay thank you okay i i'm afraid okay one more question please krishna 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 <laughs> Well, it's it's not it's not a question, and um, I wanted to address uh, Christopher Austin, but I think he's left already. But I just felt uh, I felt a need to sort of salvage uh, the term Leela, because oh. you know he was kind of bringing it up that Leela is this uh, typical Vaishnav afterthought. Uh, you know, to sort of explain so many things. Mm-hmm. But I think it's possible, um, and you'd probably be better at this than me, Ricardo, but um, to to see how Leela is, uh, is, is a necessity rather than an accident. Um, I just, uh, what comes to my mind is that it's a necessity because the alternative would be uh, a god who is subject to uh, the reactions of action. So karma, we understand, brings, I think this is true of all the Vaishnav traditions and far beyond uh, the idea that karma is always bringing about some sort of what we call reaction. And the, 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 the opposite of that um, one way of understanding Leela is it's just not that. Leela is action without reaction. It is the way God acts. If we understand that God is omnipotent, that means he is capable of acting, but um, that acting has to be uh, in the form of, of Leela. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But uh, if, because I think there are two, perhaps two levels here. The first one is whether or not a, a Leela has to take place. I mean, that's all right. But, but the, the, the other level, perhaps, are the details of the Leela. I mean, the actions that Krishna, that, that the gopis, the, the actions that, that they, they actually make. So if this second level, we think that they are necessary. Krishna has to act like this. He has to act like that within the Leela. Then perhaps there's not Leela anymore. You see what I mean? Because he's impelled from outside. So yes, yes, he's not free anymore to act as yeah. he will. 
Yeah, well, yeah. That gets into you know the realm of understanding uh, bhakti in terms of how how God sort of intentionally subordinates himself to the will of his devotee, um, where yes, uh, he is impelled, he is in a sense forced, but his force is is. Um, ultimately under his control he allows it that's different yeah. <laughs> he allows himself to be controlled as as a parent as a parent allows his child to you know rough house with him in, in the, and and so on yeah i just wanted to salvage i i felt like uh you know we kind of let uh, the notion of Leela get dismissed a bit too easily. <laughs> so go ahead, Alan. No, I was just, I was agreeing with you. Oh. I was thinking about the idea of uh, within even that Leela, you have the idea of a sort of sattva and all that stuff, the, 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 different, the different entities that are engaging in that Leela. Uh, and so you have all them connected by Shakti you know, and Shakti Mat. And then you also have the idea that that um, Leela, in a sense, is is necessary if God is acting. If God is acting, then he has to act in a certain way. And therefore, that acting in a certain way is through something that's called Leela, right? So if you think that God is simple substance, is unacting and non-acting, then you have a problem. But if God is, has an aspect that is acting, then there you have Leela. You're right. You're right. So, You're right. That's the point. Anyway, okay, so, so uh, I'm again, I'm afraid we have to end. <laughs> and this was a quite long session. Thank you for your patience. T tomorrow we are going to have a shorter session again, only only three talks. The first one will be by Vijay Ramnarase. Ram He's going to talk about um, the Nimbarga Sampradaya, the concept of God in the Nimbarga Sampradaya. Then we are going to have Frederick Smith is going to speak about God in post-Timarga, post, post sorry, and then finally, finally, Alan was going to speak about the Chaitanya Vaishnava tradition, so we hope to see you again tomorrow. Yeah, so thank you very much, bye-bye. Thank you, Kenneth, thank you, Sri Sri Acharya, thank you for your amazing talk. Bye-bye.